Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong This is Abraham Goldberg, director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement and faculty member in the Department of Political Science here at JMU. I'm Logan Ziegler, program coordinator at JMU Civic. I'm Jacqueline Dilbrin, communication specialist at JMU Civic. And I'm Ryan Ritter, an undergraduate democracy fellow at JMU Civic. In this episode, we talk with Lieutenant Colonel Dan Curran, who is the battalion commander for the 450th Civil Affairs Battalion Airborne. He commissioned into the United States Army through the JMU ROTC program in May 2005 after graduating with a bachelor's degree in international affairs. Lieutenant Colonel Curran began his career as an air defense artillery officer and was first assigned to a Patriot Missile Battalion on Gwangju Air Base in South Korea serving as both battalion logistics officer and launcher platoon leader. He then served in multiple roles in the Army Space and Missile Defense Command in Colorado Springs. In 2009, he deployed to the Kurdish region of Iraq as part of a military transition team with a mission to help national police forces secure the borders where Iraq, Iran, and Turkey meet. We hope you enjoy this episode and invite you to engage with us on Twitter, and Facebook at JMU Civic and on Instagram at JMU Duke's Boat. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy Matters. It's a it's a privilege to be able to connect with you. And I wanted to start by asking um, if you could share why you joined the military to begin with. And I'm also curious, did you realize what you were getting into when you joined ROTC at JMU? So I, I've, I've definitely struggled with this question kind of my entire military career. Um, the, the why, why did I join in the first place? And I think there are a number of little reasons that kind of uh, uh, pushed me along the way, a sense of adventure, not really having enough direction in my life. And uh, I was like, well, this sounds like a great idea. Let's see what happens. Uh, but um, I do believe that, uh, and this may sound very, very strange, but uh, growing up, I was in Boy Scouts. And I think that, that that formed me quite a bit. And it gave me kind of this perspective of um, a romantic warrior's look at life. Um, and because of that, I I almost felt like I needed to serve. I needed to get out there and do my part. Um, there's nothing telling me that, or there was, there was no, no obligation. There was nothing uh, um, in the community around me, in my family, anything like that, that was pushing me towards it. But it was just this, this feeling that I can't explain. And it's very, very hard for me to put into words, but it, it, uh, it definitely just drove me to say, no, this is something that I have to do with my life. Um, <laughs> now, in hindsight, uh, did I know what I was getting into? I thought I did at the time, uh, but truthfully, I had absolutely no clue. Um, you know, when you are first joining ROTC, depending on who you're talking to, it, it's uh, for the most part an 18 to 20 year old 
let's be honest, kid. Um, uh, I know no one who's 18 to 20 thinks that they're a kid, but when you have the advantage of a few years, um, you do look back and say, yeah, yeah, you might be an adult, but there's a lot of things you don't quite understand. Um, so going into it, did I absolutely know that we were a nation at war? I did. Did I know that I could be in harm's way? I did. Did I understand the absolute um, responsibility that I was going to have as an officer in the army? No way. No way. Um, did I understand the relationships that I was going to develop? Absolutely did not. Uh, did I know how it was going to impact uh, my life as a whole, the decisions that I make, um, the relationships that I have? Uh, there's no way. Um, I mean, going going back to kind of my first duty assignment, I was uh, um, a launcher platoon leader of a, a Patriot um, Air Defense Missile Battalion in Korea. Um, I'm 23 years old and uh, taking command of this platoon, I have to sign for all the equipment. So as a 23-year-old, I was signed for $70 million worth of equipment. Who thinks about that when they're going through college? Um, and that, that's just, that's not even talking about the concept of war. That's just a property book. <laughs> so you're immediately responsible for the property. Um, then you start to take into consideration that as, as a leader, you know, you were responsible for the health, welfare, morale of everyone that you're working with. And uh, life still goes on while you're in the military. So people are having very real problems. You have people who um, develop cancer. You have people who are having uh, marital problems. You have people who um, have children with special needs. Uh, and all of this has to be managed at the exact same time as all the operations and missions and all the demands of the military. Um, so did I have any idea what I was getting into? No. <laughs> I really had no clue. I think it's very important to note um, how how special the JMU ROTC program is. Um, I have looked at a number of the other interviews that, that you've done so far and um, hearing all the experiences of uh, the the other individuals that you've spoken with, it's it's so incredible because those are all my classmates. We all went through the JMU ROTC program at the exact same time. Um, and as I've continued to serve in the military, one of the things that I've seen is that there's something about uh, people that go through the JMU program, they they tend to serve uh, for a longer period of time. Um, I was just recently at the Command and General Staff College, which is um, a, a required professional military uh, education course for majors. And uh, of if you look at the schools that had the most number of students in that program, uh, number one was West Point, number two was University of Texas, which has an enormous core of cadets, and number three was JMU. Uh, and it is, it's incredible how you, how I continue to find uh, those individuals serving in the military. Um, and you just, you don't see that at other programs. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure what that, that thing is, what it is that made JMU special. I think that a lot has to be said for the cadre that were there at the time. Um, Nick Swain was the professor of military science and he did an absolutely incredible job. And I know that he retired there to uh, Harrisonburg um, and has continued to to serve the community. Uh, and if I'm, I'm sure some of you know uh, know Nick, and um, it, it's something that's very ingrained in him, and it, it may be that he passed that on to us. But this sense of service uh, throughout your entire life—you're always trying to to help other people. Um, 
I uh, actually was back at JMU not too long ago finishing my master's, uh, and I got to interact with um, the uh, then professor of military science, uh, um, Tom Tolman, and uh, saw a very, very similar environment and similar uh, enthusiasm with the, the cadets. Um, so it, it may be part of the culture from the university itself that bleeds into the ROTC program, um, but uh, there, there's something in the water. <laughs> there is something there for sure that uh, that makes it unique, um, and that's the only only real explanation I have for uh, how well cadets have done coming out of that program, and how many of them continue to serve for long periods of time. Because when you finish an ROTC program, you're um, only required to do four years active duty, and I'm at sixteen or seventeen at this point. Um, and everyone that you've interviewed so far is, is roughly at the exact same. Um, so, like I said, there, there's something in the water. There's something special there. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? And what do you remember about how that day changed you? It, it's kind of interesting um, how so many people can rem- remember exactly what they were doing on that day. Um, I, I equate it to, you know, listening to my parents. You know, everybody knows where they were when... Um, we landed on the moon. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I remember exactly where I was. Uh, I was in my dorm room in Chapelier. Um, I'd woken up to get ready for class. And for some reason that morning, I decided to turn on the TV. I never turned on the TV before going to class. Um, one of the morning news programs was on. And literally right as I turned the TV on, um, I saw a replay of uh, one of the airplanes going into the World Trade Center. Um and I, I didn't know what I was seeing. I was, I was just in absolute awe. I was flabbergasted. Uh, um, my roommate was still asleep in bed and I woke him up. Um, and, uh, we're sit, just watching, uh, trying to figure out what in the world happened, what's going on. A few other things kind of happened throughout the day. Um, so in Chapelier, you guys know it, it's a, a sweet setup. So you have, um, six different people in the same room. Uh, and it, we were all really, really close friends. One of, one of my other friends in there, um, his father was actually in charge of all of the reconstruction going on at the Pentagon. Uh, so he knew distinctly um, where his dad was supposed to be that day. And the section of the Pentagon that was hit was, uh, was right where his dad was supposed to be. Um, and that, I think that's one of the things from September 11th that kind of stays with me more than anything is remembering how my friend reacted to not knowing if his dad was dead or alive. Yeah. I still get a little emotional uh, just thinking back to it. Um, because, you know, there's so much of, of what that day was. It, it's not, it's not the destruction of the property um, where, I mean, that is a huge symbol. Uh, it, it really is the loss of life and um, the families that were impacted forever because of it. Um, so thankfully, uh, Jeff's father, um, actually ended up having to go out of town because of a a family emergency. Uh, so he wasn't there, but, um, it's, it's just incredible how the smallest shift in, in something happening the day prior, uh, either caused one person to stay alive, caused another person to pass away. Um, and it's, it's just really hard to, to come to grips with a lot of that. I'm just curious the amount of time that elapsed between him not knowing to finding out that his father was, was not in the building. 
it was quite a bit of time. Um, all of the, the phone lines have been cut down, so uh, not cut down, but uh, turned off. Um, so I want to say it was around eight or nine in the morning uh, when the first planes struck the World Trade Center. It was later in the day when the Pentagon was hit. Um, I don't think that he was able to get in touch with anyone until at the earliest uh, that evening. So probably about six to eight hours uh, before he could finally get word that uh, that his father was okay. Um, and it, it was it was a rough day. It was a very very rough day for him. Um, and I, I'm just hoping that uh, the group of friends that we had did everything we could to uh, make him feel as as good as we could at the time. Um, but none of us could really, really put ourselves in his shoes. I was wondering if you could share your experiences serving in the global war on terror and ongoing conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. And how did those experiences impact you? I do have a little bit of a unique perspective on uh, the global war on terrorism because of the, the one deployment I had. Um, and that deployment is it's just slightly different than what a lot of people experienced. Uh, to give you a little context, following the surge in 2006, 2007, uh, we realized that we were going to be there for quite a long time. Um, we needed to retrain the Iraqi forces uh, how to do their jobs. Um, and that's everything from police forces to firefighters to border police to their military, uh, to their Navy, to their Air Force. Uh, and this is kind of all stemming from uh, the fact that we disbanded all military and police forces earlier on in the war. Um, might have been a little bit of a mistake we made in hindsight. Uh, so the Army developed this program called MIT Teams, MTT, Military Transition Teams. And the concept was um, you put about a 12-person team together, and they get embedded with the Iraqi forces to uh, help train them on how to do their job. Um, it could be everything from mission command, which kind of teaches um, a staff on how to how to effectively work and plan. Um, it could be truly uh, showing a police force how to conduct police operations. So I ended up on a national uh, border police team, and we were assigned to the far north eastern corner of Iraq. So we had the borders of both Turkey and Iran. Um, and this region of Iraq is uh, uh, the Kurdish region. Um, and that's where the unique perspective comes in. We were the only 12-man team to ever be in that location. And we were not backfilled, so no one else kind of uh, saw that part of the country. Um, the Kurdish region of Iraq is, is something special. It is absolutely something special. Um, I have never, never experienced hospitality in my life quite like I have with uh, uh, the Kurds. Um, and... Working with them, because, because there wasn't nearly the amount of imminent threat, we were able to have um, much more realistic conversations than I think what a lot of my, my friends uh, south um, or further south in the country were able to have. Um, to talk about the, the history of the country, to talk about what they see happening from U.S. forces, um, to talk about where they see our current policies taking the country um, and to talk about in many ways, the wrongs that have been done to the Kurds over the years. Uh, because if you don't know the history of the Kurdish people, they have um, for lack of better terms uh, been bamboozled multiple times in the last hundred years. Uh, and they're still struggling to 
uh, find their own place, struggling to have their own country. Um, so anyways, going into this, uh, we are working with the border police, um, and the, the unit is fantastic. There's, there's not a whole lot that we need to do for them. So it almost turned into what can we do for the community? Um, we started to contact different agencies throughout the United States to help us do, uh, I'll call them goodwill missions. Uh, we found that there was a town close by to where we were stationed named Rwandus, and Rwandus is the art capital of the Kurdish region. Um, they have a music school there, they have an art school there. Uh, so we worked with, I believe it was Spirit of America, and had close to 100 different instruments donated and took the instruments over to the school. Uh, and we got to hand the instruments out to, to all the children and just you know, seeing the joy in their eyes was absolutely incredible. Um, we worked with other organizations to send over school supplies and we went to uh, very, very rural areas of the country and were uh, you know, giving a notebook, pens, pencils, book bags to children. Um, so we, we definitely got to uh, have a very, very different experience working with the people closely and seeing the kind of positive impact we can make, but also seeing them as humans, seeing them as people, uh, not worrying that they are nice to me today, but I might be in a firefight with them tomorrow. Um, so it, it definitely, it gave me a different perspective, like I said, than a, a lot of my peers. Um, so as I look at how the, how the experiences impacted me. And I look at, uh, the ongoing conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, it, it really hits home because, uh, as I mentioned, we had disbanded the, uh, police and military forces. And one of the known impacts from that was actually, um, the eventual development of ISIS. Um, uh, and ISIS really tried to take a major, major foothold in the Kurdish region. Um, the Kurds were almost uh, the last stand um, uh, preventing ISIS from taking control of the country. They, I mean, they fought so unbelievably hard. And uh, there was a period during that conflict where um, the United States, in my opinion, was not offering the support that they should have to the Kurdish people. And this was just another instance of... Uh, uh, the Kurds being let down by, by international players. So to me, it was, it was very heartbreaking. Uh, it was people that, that I cared for, that I developed a relationship with. Um, and, uh, I felt that they were our friends, they're our allies and, um, we weren't giving them the support that that was needed. Um, however, I, I actually just finished uh, a course recently. And during that course, uh, ran into a few people that have been in the Kurdish region just in the last couple of years. And, uh, they're saying that the progress that's being made there, um, how they're recovering from ISIS, uh, the, the Kurdish region is, is becoming stronger and stronger. So definitely a, a good news story at the end of this. Um, how did it impact me? Uh, I, if I look at how the different experiences, um, the global war on terrorism, uh, the operations going on overseas, how, overseas, how they impacted me, um, and as you all have, have kind of pointed out, and I don't think that maybe I appreciated it as much um, until now how how deeply personal they are. Um, if I look at how it has impacted me, I would probably say that the number one impact is um, continuing to serve. Uh, 
even though I decided at one point that um, I needed to, to change my focus and move from the active duty service to the reserves, um, I, I knew that there was a part of me that had to continue to serve. And um, as I've, I've kind of progressed in my career, um, I realized that one of the biggest things that I feel like I can give to the folks that I serve with, um, and I'm not trying to uh, um, toot my own here, horn here, but I, I, I think that I'm a decent leader. And um, I want to make sure that everyone coming up in the military now has good leadership. Um, because if, if any of these events or similar events ever happen again, um, I want to make sure that they're, they're taken care of. Uh, so I think if, if we look at the personal connection that I have with all these different events over the years, um, that's probably how it's impacted me the most is that I want to make sure uh, that the soldiers are continue to be, uh, to be cared for and that they have good leadership. Um, and I just try very, very hard to, uh, to give that to them um, and to, to make sure that they succeed moving forward. We also wanted to ask you, you, you've actually already answered this next question in many ways. I don't think the American public fully appreciates the relationship between the United States and the Kurds um, and also the situation of the Kurds within Iraq. Um, but is there anything else that you would want the public to appreciate about the United States' military response um, to the September 11th attacks that are lacking in mainstream narratives? What I don't think a lot of people appreciate is truly the complexity of what happened. Um, there are, there, there's, there's so much to it. Uh, if you start to think about, um, at a strategic level, we decide that we're going to uh, conduct military operations in two other countries um, very near to the, the same time. So we have to plan uh, an invasion. We have to plan um, uh, international partners. Uh, this is all being influenced by polit politics within our own country. Um, so there, there is so much going on at the top level. And um, within the military, everyone at the top level, while they're doing the strategic planning, they are trying to do the absolute best that they can with the information that they have. Um, and as they're developing all these plans and figuring figuring out how to uh, how to move the militaries, um, and then fast forward to when you're actually in country trying to develop a strategy to to win, um, and ultimately, you know, one piece of the strategy that uh, someone develops at the top level trickles down to Johnny and Susie, who are told that they need to um, move their squad to a new checkpoint, and. Johnny and Susie aren't concerned with the, the strategic impact of what they're doing. Um, the, what they're worried about is they want to be successful in their mission and they want to go home. They, they don't want to die. Um, and I don't think it, it's, it's very easy for people who are not in the military to really get a full grasp of that complete spectrum of things that are going on in the military that from the very, very bottom, you have very close friends. Um, you know, we are brothers and sisters in arms and it, it truly is brothers and sisters because when you're working at that level and your goal is, I want to, I want to accomplish my mission, 
but I also want to go home and actually see my mom and dad or see my wife or see my children. Um, the only way that, uh, especially when you're in very, very tough environments that you get through it is, um, by having other people who have your back. So you, I think that, that there is some understanding of that piece, but really understanding the entire spectrum of how the, the military works together and how people within the military almost have to be simultaneously uh, thinking through all these different aspects of um, strategic level and caring for their soldier or caring for their teammate all at the exact same time. Uh, there's a, a lot of mental gymnastics that go with that. Um, and that mental gymnastics in turn, I guess in, in turn will make those people very, very successful because they have that, uh, flexibility and resiliency. Um, but it's also hard to turn off that, uh, uh, that level of thinking when you come back. So there, <laughs> and I, I kind of feel like I'm going down a few different rabbit holes just with that statement, but there's, there's so much that happens just on the day-to-day basis of having to do your job. So I, I would say, understanding that everyone was trying to do what they um the best that they can at the time but um i guess where the conversation ended up going was that uh those same requirements uh in order to succeed um can have some positive and negative impacts when they come home your experience with the military and being abroad is deeply personal you mentioned your roommate um I think his name was Jeff, whose father worked in the Pentagon. You talked about your relationships, your interpersonal relationships to the Kurds. You talked about the people that you're serving with trying to stay alive who are dealing with these um, day-to-day life types of issues, um, children with special needs, um, divorces, and all of the things that are that we deal with, whether we are in Iraq, um, Afghanistan, or, or here sitting in Virginia, that real life happens. I'm wondering, you know, looking back on your experiences, are you still in contact with some of the people that you met, some of the Kurds that you met? You know, I know that you, you mentioned that you, you spoke to some people that had been over there, but are you able to maintain these relationships because it's relationships that seem very important to you? You're absolutely right. The relationships are very important. Uh, definitely. Um, the short answer is yes. Uh, we, we, uh, were a little lucky in some of the relationships that we were able to develop, um, uh, while we were over there specifically with our translators. So, when we found out that we were going to uh, be in this particular region, we needed to have uh, translators who um, both spoke Kurdish and spoke Arabic. Um, honestly, that might, might sound a little bit more difficult than it truly is because uh, the reality for Kurds is that they have to speak Kurdish and Arabic. Um, and it just so happened that we ended up with four translators. Uh, uh, these young men were straight out of college. They had all studied English in, in uh, I think it was at the, Salahuddin University um, in Iraq, um, and <laughs> it just by total coincidence, all four of them were from the town that we were stationed in. So they knew the town backwards and forwards, and it was incredibly useful for us um, because when when we got to this location, uh, as I'd mentioned, no one had been there before, so we we kind of had to build everything from the ground up. Um, we had to uh, figure out 
where we're going to get beds from. Um, we had to make our own kitchen. We had to do everything. And, and it was um, going out into the town uh, and interacting with the, the local businesses uh, in order to get these things. Um, and uh, the, the translators obviously were, were indispensable because they knew right away, like, yeah, they're probably not giving you a great deal or, uh, oh, this is, this is great. He's really taking care of you. Um, so we, we absolutely developed an incredibly close relationship with, uh, with these guys. Um, and every single one of them is now a U.S. citizen. Um, they have all come over to the United States, uh, and they, they're in, uh, there, there are different spots around the country that are known to be, uh, and actually Harrisonburg is one of them, um, known to be, uh, um, higher Kurdish populations. Uh, so I think there's some in, uh, the Nashville area, uh, around Dallas, um, so they're, they're all over here and we do stay in touch via Facebook. Um, it, it's, that's kind of funny. You know, you mentioned that, uh, uh, those personal relationships and have I seen them since they've come over here? No. Can I tell you how many times it's crossed my mind of, okay, I'm making a road trip to Colorado. Is there any way I can stop off, um, somewhere and see one of these guys? It's in the back of my mind all the time. Um, uh, I, I do wish the relationship was, I, I don't want to say better, but I, I wish that we were in touch more, I guess is the, the way to say it. Um, actually having conversations, seeing how they're doing. Um, and, you know, in, in many ways, uh, we're, we're kind of on similar paths because, uh, as I mentioned, you know, they were, they were fresh out of college when they started working for us. I had been out of college for, what, maybe four or five years by the time I uh, went there. Um so now that they're over here, uh, they're getting married, having children. Um, I got married, had children. So we're kind of through Facebook seeing life progress. Um, and it, it has been really, really nice. But I, I, I do wish that we were in contact more than what we are. From your perspective, what have been the consequences of U.S. military operations in response to the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks for domestic and U.S. foreign policy? I'll start with foreign policy. Um, the the number one consequence has been, uh, and this is a good one. Um, I think that we are much more acutely aware of uh, actions and consequences. Um, I might might have mentioned that earlier, um, but uh, we were able to see throughout the course of um, our counterinsurgency campaign uh, and the war on terror how some of the decisions that we had made had negative impacts. Um, we also, you know, one of the things that we were, everybody who deployed was, uh, actually, um, probably received some sort of briefing or training on what we called the strategic specialist. Um, and, uh, if you don't know, a specialist is, um, one of the lower, uh, uh, junior enlisted ranks in the military. Um, and the reason they call them the st- strategic specialist is because that one individual could be, uh, um, interacting with, um, uh, people in Afghanistan or Iraq and their, the way that they interact with someone, uh, the way they choose to handle the situation where it could be 100% within their purview ultimately led to uh, much, much larger problems. So um, again, kind of going back to the theme, we, we 100% started to understand much more acutely um, actions and consequences. Uh, the other one, and this is, uh, kind of where the military is right now. Um, we, we were so hyper-focused on counterinsurgency. Um, we 
pushed everything that we had, uh, our entire focus into this one area of the world. And we kind of uh, stopped looking at everything else that was going on. At the same time, everyone else in the world was paying very, 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 very close attention to what we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so the big consequence right now that we're dealing with is uh, the, the near-peer threats that we have in the world, specifically with China and Russia, um, they are making very specific moves. Uh, and they're, they've calculated these moves based on um, our actions in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and they've also taken this time of, uh, while we were busy, putting a whole lot of money into um, uh, their militaries, into research and development, into developing um, uh, a combination of new weaponry, but just uh, development of new um, equipment, I think is probably the best way to put it, um, that has, has shifted things a little bit. Um, and if you're aware of what China is doing in the South China Sea, um, how they're starting to extend their influence uh, um, into international waters by creating uh, makeshift islands that they're claiming are part of their land. Um, there's a, a number of things that they're doing that are actually tied to the fact that we were incredibly focused in Iraq, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, the same thing, what Russia is doing around the Black Sea. Uh, there, there's many, many things that are going on. Um, so, yeah, that's that's one of the big consequences that we've been very, very focused in one small area of the world. And uh, as we are coming out of that, we're starting to see that there are uh, other large problems that need to be addressed. President Joe Biden has announced U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan and Iraq by September 11, 2021. As we engage in this conversation in August 2021, Taliban fighters are taking or retaking districts in Afghanistan. There are also ongoing attacks on U.S. facilities and on the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq. As someone who has experienced the conflicts firsthand on the ground, what concerns do you have about the future of Afghanistan and Iraq and the Middle East more broadly? It's heartbreaking. It, it really is. Um, I, you know, when, when we first, when, when President Biden first announced uh, that we were going to be pulling out of Afghanistan and uh, we started to see that Bagram Air Force Base had been uh, turned uh, back over to uh, the Afghani's. Um, there, there, there's multiple different uh, levels to look at it. You know, on on the one side, I think it is a progression that needs to happen. It's something that's been in the works for for quite a long time. Um, but there definitely also is a a personal attachment that a lot of people have to it. Um, I have a friend uh, who was very very upset uh, um, on social media because of it, um, primarily. Because while he was there, uh, their unit was a uh, uh, unit directly out of New York, and they had worked very, very hard to actually have um, one of the uh, uh, steel frames from the World Trade Center uh, put um, uh, as a, a memorial at Bagram, um, and it was left there, uh, and that again that hurt them personally. Um, I. I think when you when you look at all of the work that uh, um, the country has put into it, uh, that all parts of the military that put into it, that civilian organizations have put into it, um, it's it it's just very hard to see that I, um, you know, a year from now we may be asking, did did we do this for nothing? Um, uh, but at the same time. 
I mean, go back to 2001, um, or, you know, when we first started looking at the, uh, the thought of, um, invading these countries, <laughs> do you think anybody would have said 20 years later, we would still have forces in Afghanistan? No one thought that that was going to happen. Um, no one, no one, I think everyone kind of still had this thought of it's going to be similar to what the Persian Gulf was like, uh, where, you know, a couple weeks on the ground and everything's going to be over. Um, uh, so this idea of being here for 20 years, uh, the amount of resources that have gone into it, the amount of time, the amount of death. And, um, I think it's very fair to mention, uh, that it's not just us forces that have died. Um, uh, just the amount of human death, uh, has, has been very, very real. Um, and along the way where I, you know, I'd mentioned earlier, uh, that with disbanding the police forces that potentially was one of the impetus to the rise of ISIS, um, police and military, military rather, um, you know, we, we realized along the way, different things that we are doing, uh, that, um, at least we, we recognized, I would say by the second or third year, um, that we were going to be there much longer than what we had intended. Um, and then a few years after that, when we started to see more of the impacts of, um, what had happened, uh, and what was needed to return the countries and the government back to a functioning status, we realized that we were going to be there for quite a long time. Um, and, and I, I truly, truly am thankful to, um, uh, our government and to the military for, uh, coming to the decision of we are not just going to leave these countries when the task at hand is done. We're going to make sure that um, we, whatever problems we have made, we may have created along the way, we want to try to stabilize the country as much as possible, correct what uh, um, things may not be working well, which may be our fault. And uh, again, get everything functioning so that they can exist as a, uh, uh, um, with a working government before we try to leave. Uh, because we knew if we did that, things would be that much, it, it would be that much worse if we just left. Um, and there was almost this, this uh, uh, power vacuum existing, uh, it would just open the door to so many more problems. So I'm very, very happy that we did that. Um, and eventually, you just kind of get to a point of how much more can we give? How much longer are we going to be there? Um, and a- again, you know, I very much recognize that the military answers to the United States people. Um, there is that in between of, uh, um, the elected officials. Um, but we answer to the United States people, which means that our military policy in many ways is tied to the will of the public. Um, and the will of the public is, is, is tired of war, um, tired of, of people being gone. Uh, and if, if I don't think that there's any way that we can, um, we can sustain being there forever and ever and ever. Um, I will tell you, you know, early on in my deployment to Iraq, uh, I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. Um, and especially in Afghanistan, I think a lot of us knew very early on, uh, or were at least concerned that the exact same thing that happened to the Russians is going to happen to the United States, where um, the, the Afghan Afghanis or the Iraqis they're just going to wait us out um, because they recognize that uh, the American people do not have the same um, 
patience, I think is, is might be the best way to put it, as as uh, they do. And it it, it, tr- it purely just comes down to culture. Uh, the, the cultures are, um, they look at things differently. So uh, the Afghani people will very simply look like, yeah, we'll, we'll just wait 20 years, you'll be gone, and we can just continue doing what we wanted to do. Um, and that that 20 year period to them is absolutely nothing. But 20 years to uh, uh, citizens to the United States is an eternity. There, there are a lot of uh, concerns coming out of uh, um, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but I, I do ultimately think that it's something that needed to happen. I do think that it is uh, heartbreaking for um, a lot of people who put in the time, effort, people who have lost their lives um, to see that in some areas uh, it's just specifically in Afghanistan that it's just returning to the Taliban. Um, I think we have a little bit better of a success story and story in Iraq, uh, but still it, it, it's just, it's difficult. And I think what I did, if I did articulate anything well there is that there are um, multiple layers to it that, uh, uh, that I appreciate. We understand that democracy requires shared sacrifice and gratitude to those who have sacrificed so much to preserve it. And from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you so much for the sacrifices you've made. And while we recognize the fundamental reality that sacrifice is an unequal burden, I was wondering what advice do you have for individuals who have not served in the military for how they can contribute to preserving, strengthening, and reimagining democracy? One of the things that I'm, uh, I think, heavily influenced by is um, the most recent election uh, and the election cycle that went with that. Um, and there, there was just so much uh, animosity that went back and forth uh, between the different political parties, uh, so much um, anger that, that was there. If... if if I was to look at uh, what I think a patriot really is, I think a patriot is someone who is conscious of what is going on in the country um, and thinks through problems, uh, thinks about their opinion, uh, researches, um, and uh, is open to having conversations, open to having a dialogue. And if, uh, if you look at you know, the definition of a dialogue, um, an analogy to the definition is that it's like a drumbeat. There's, there's always going to be a back and forth. There's a back and forth with the dialogue where, um, I feel like that's been missing for a while, uh, where it's, it's totally fine to have a different opinion, but talk about it, understand where someone else is coming from. Don't give any sort of disparaging comments because they think differently than you. Um, I think it's, it's very strange how, how we've come to, I guess, forget that people who come from different parts of the country are going to think differently. Our belief system is 100% a derivative of our culture. And uh, even though we are one culture, or excuse me, even though we're one country, um, there are countless different cultures and microcultures within our country. Um, you know, a, a community in Missouri is going to be very, very different than a community in Georgia or a community in Oregon. Um, and the culture of that community is going to influence how they think. Uh, so it's, it's, you, you should expect that people that, that come from different parts of the country are going to think differently than what you do. Uh, and I think to be 
a patriot today, one of the first things that we need to do is embrace that we think differently, respect that we think differently, and try to understand where one another is coming from and not getting caught in this situation of uh, you think differently, so I'm going to immediately label you as X, Y, or Z um, because that, that doesn't get us anywhere. So that, that kind of animosity, ha- I feel like, has, has been very, very detrimental to our democracy. It's been very detrimental to um, what is patriotism. And I feel like there has been um, uh, a, a people are trying to put a, trying to define patriotism purely within their own lens, um, which is unfair. And it, 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 it their, their view of patriotism, I think, is very, very uh, incomplete. Um, so with a combination of that and I, I, even though this is one of the most uh, overused phrased in like every high school paper or uh, speech or, or something like that uh, from JFK where he says, that's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I think that right now that is a very, very true uh, statement. Um, and I think that people need to just take a look at what can I do to make my country better and tie that back to everything that I just said of the country is the combination of all those communities. So what can I do to make my community better? And uh, taking those steps to improve your community uh, are, are what we really need to do. Um, uh, and I think that those are the things that we need to do moving forward. And those are the things that we need to embrace as patriotism. You know, if you are trying to make your community better, uh, you're trying to make your country better, you're a patriot. If you're trying to understand um, what is going on in the world, why the United States is, uh, the governing officials are making decisions the way that they are, and you're questioning those decisions, you're a patriot. Because the politicians, again, are not the people who are in charge. The American people are. So if you have representatives making decisions on your behalf, then it's your duty to make sure that they're truly making decisions that reflect the way you think, that are on your behalf. Um, so those are the things that I think that we need to truly start to recognize as patriotism, that we need to really embrace the thought process that goes on in, uh, in being an American citizen. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.